Now, thank you, Gordon, for this invitation and to all of you for coming out on this evening. I'm going to talk about Australia, which, unlike the two you've been hearing about where there's a single report, Australia has had a series of reports over the last 25 years. And I'm focusing on testimonial-based reports. Some of these have been state-based, that is, of those six states of Australia and a couple of territories, because child welfare is a state responsibility in the Constitution. But the more important ones have been national, coming out of the Commonwealth or federal government, and they've sliced and diced the issues. So Indigenous children were covered by one, child migrants were covered by another, other children in out-of-home care were covered by another, and then the people who'd been through the forced adoption process were covered by another, um, and each of them in turn got their apologies. In more recent years, the focus has shifted onto sexual abuse rather than abuse more generally. And we've again had some state reports, but the big one was the five-year Royal Commission on Sexual Abuse, on institutional responses to sexual abuse. And for the first time, it moved beyond child welfare institutions and adopted a broader definition of institution that included religious organisations, sporting clubs, um, a whole lot of other things that might seem quite strange to you, given the context in which we're speaking today. There's been a lot of criticism about that, that it took attention from the particular issues facing care leavers, uh, some suggestions that it was devised simply so that it couldn't be seen as a witch hunt against the Catholic Church. Um, but it certainly has given, created an awareness of sexual abuse as a problem beyond in the narrow confines in which it had been seen in the past and it's producing change across those broader range of institutions rather than simply in the child welfare arena. The, the um, auspice for these reports, these inquiries has been different so that the state ones tend to be parliamentary, sometimes done directly by parliamentarians, sometimes outsourced to individual commissioners. The federal ones, the first one was done by the Human Rights Commission then we had three coming out of the Senate, which is the Upper House uh, Community Affairs Committee, and then, of course, the Royal Commission is independent of all of that and has far greater powers. That means the resourcing is different. Clearly, state ones have far less resourcing than federal ones, and parliamentary ones have far less resourcing than Royal Commissions, and that's reflected in the way in which historians are involved. So the involvement of historians across this range has been quite diverse. In the best of them, there were in fact historical units established alongside the, the inquiry and they set about and worked for the entire length of the inquiry, developing the information that the inquiry needed. And you can see their work reflected in the reports where there is archival research as well as the use, use existing historical resources. Um, Historians tend not to be involved directly in the, getting the, the testamentary evidence that comes from the, to the Commissioner more directly. Se the second way in which historians are involved is through commissioned reports where the inquiry develops a particular focus that they want an answer to and they'll commission a, an external historian to do that and take that report in. In terms of the where the research is done internally, which is the most common, I've got to say, where people attached to the inquiry are instructed to go and write, find out the historical stuff. You see it developing as the digitisation of historical resources has increased. 
So initially you get very little archival work, um, except if they are asked to answer a very specific question, and you get a reliance on secondary sources, that is written, works written by historians about particular institutions or practices, and a reliance on what I call tertiary history, that is histories written by non-historians and the two groups that I identify there are histories written by social workers for social workers and histories written by lawyers for lawyers. And there is a sense in which in some ways the inquiries find those histories more comforting than what we produce. The other thing to understand about these, all of these inquiries is that they're not about the past strictly, they're more about the intersection that Perry was talking about. Um, so they want to derive from the inquiry, even the historical work, lessons for the future. And that means that alongside their emphasis on testimony as their key source of evidence, the second amount of material that comes in is social science research. They turn to researchers who've already shown an interest in the area, give them a particular question and tell them to go out and survey the literature and find the answer. And that really strongly influences the final reports. So as a general conclusion from all of this survey, I'd say that where historians are more fully incorporated into the inquiry structure, history is more likely to inform the final report rather than simply providing the contextual background. And in that way, it creates new knowledge in a way that just using secondary and tertiary sources cannot. We've never had a historian actually on the commission as you two have had, but we've had them at that next level being quite influential. The other way in which new knowledge is being created is by survivor groups who were the people who got these inquiries up in the first place. It's in response to their calls, not anything we've said that governments decide to act. They've become key advocates for history because they had to do historical research to establish their case in the first place, and they just get better and better at it. Um, they're much better archival researchers than I've ever been because they have the determination to keep going rather than say, I've done enough, that's, that's my time, I'll just go on. They just keep going down that rabbit hole. Um, and what they've done is shared the materials that they've discovered very freely with with the inquiries but also with historians who want to use them. So their materials they've produced are part of the public record of the inquiries that is in, um, available on the internet. They've also become the key advocates for this story not being lost. So they continue to agitate for follow-on projects which will provide a new historical new historical resources that allow their experience to be written into the national story. They often talk about claiming citizenship through this process. So we've had um, national oral history projects, the interviews from which are lodged in the National Library and are available online generally. Um, there were, in most cases, specific museum displays. In fact, the Prime Minister, in apologising at the end of the sexual abuse inquiry, said he was going to fund a, a museum of sexual abuse. We're a bit worried about what that means yeah. and every time people inquire with the relevant office about what it means, they don't know either. Mm -hmm. But there is now money flowing. Uh, if you can claim that you can do it, um, and some, some of the care leave groups have actually made a claim on that money, not for a history of sexual abuse, but for a museum um, of, of out-of-home care, which would be great. Mm -hmm. 
So we've had museum displays as well that have had limited success in touring. The most successful is the one to do with child migration because they could show it in maritime museums and they're always keen for content and there's maritime museums in every capital city because we are a nation where all the dominant population came by sea. Um, the other ones, museums tend to be a bit queasy about taking it. They think it might deter the, the kind of school groups that are the museum's bread and butter. So they pop up and they disappear, but a lot of them are in cartons waiting to be picked up. The third of these historic resources that owes its origin to survivor groups is the Find and Connect web resource that I'm associated with. I'm not going to talk much about it, just go and look up Find and Connect. Uh, just put it into your search engine and you'll see it. And if you're very lucky, I haven't checked it recently, but we're about to launch a map where you can hover at any point in Australia and identify all the institutions in that place and then link to the Find and Connect website. Very exciting stuff. Um, that was very generously funded by the federal government. Uh, the task we were given was to give the principal care lever active, to keep the principal care lever activists off the minister's telephone. In other words, to satisfy their demands. So we became, we were working with and in a lot of ways for them. And the federal government has continued to fund that in maintenance mode. Now it's built so that we will continue to meet that need. These resources, however, while they might position the care lever experience in the national story and allow teachers, for instance, to put it in the national curriculum, that kind of stuff, are only of value in policy making if they're in fact used. And the evidence for them being used is harder to find. There's a resistance there, there's no doubt about that. And the question then we have to ask is why don't policymakers see history as directly relevant to their work? How can we write history so that they will engage, or the kind of history they can engage with, without compromising our, his, our integrity as historians. It's a really tricky issue. I suspect that the answer to this question is twofold. With the source of the challenge lying on kind of both sides of the interaction, we haven't found a common language yet. When policymakers turn to history, they want direct and concrete information, rather than the complexities that we as historians like to offer because we don't believe we have the single answer. While such people are looking for the lessons of history, historians are no longer certain that there any, are any lessons to provide, aside from the overarching lessons of contingency at any point in time and multiple possibilities at any point in time. We think that's encouraging, but a policymaker with an urgent decision to make and a politician on the phone don't necessarily share our enthusiasm. Policymakers and the people who provide the research staff for inquiries need to retain a belief in the progress narrative, which historians have generally discarded. They need to believe that they can bring about change and hence they need to, well they like to be able to draw a sharp line between the present and the past. All inquiries have a beginning and an end date. And that end date is rigid. When we were commissioned to do Find and Connect, we were told we were not allowed to go beyond, we weren't allowed to go earlier than 1920, we weren't allowed to go beyond 1980. We said, you can't understand it unless you go both sides of that. Mm. And we just said, you can fund us what if you like, but we'll keep going and do the whole bit. And we did. Mm. 
Um, I guess they want an answer or a solution rather than an awareness that history brings that someone in the future will look back at their efforts and be similarly critical. So when the Royal Commission established its research series for its staff, they invited me to come up to Sydney and talk about the work I'd done for them. And I talked about this contingency and I gave a few examples of things that you know seemed new and exciting in the 1980s that I could say, actually, they experimented with the 1890s, they seemed new and exciting then, but they disappeared. Um, the long history rather than the short history they were interested in. And I talked about the intention of people who did this, that intentions weren't bad necessarily, that times changed, understandings changed, and that we had to always be aware of that. And then one of the people in the room, it was actually the head of the Royal Commission staff at that time, I think she was the only one brave enough to ask. She put up a hand and she said, do you mean in 30 years time people will be looking at us and condemning what we've done? I said, yes, they will. That is inevitable. Um, just as they'll condemn the history I've written in 30 years time and say, how could she possibly imagine it that way? Now that's really uncomfortable if you need to believe in what you're doing. Because for all the politics and politi the politicisation of in inquiries, they are founded on hope and belief. The idea that it is possible through your efforts to bring about lasting change. And we have to find a way as historians of talking in that space that acknowledges that complexity and that doesn't destroy the hope. And until we do that, people are not going to want to listen to us. Mm. Thank you.